Yeah. Um, yeah, I had the privilege of being here a few uh, weeks ago. Um, such a joy, such a pleasure to be here with you. And so happy to be here again. And um, as Pastor Edwin said uh, just a few minutes ago, this we're in the season right now of, of Lent, the season that leads up to celebration of Easter Sunday. And this season, historically in the church, has, has been, it's like 40 days where we as, as followers of Jesus, we sort of turn our faces toward Jerusalem with Jesus, and we prepare ourselves for Easter. It's a season where we're getting serious about the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And how do we actually take the time to consider the things that are hindering us from following Jesus on this way? Right. And so um, last week at, at my church in the East Village, we uh, started a series because this week is the second Sunday of Lent. Last week was the first. We started a series last week that's going to carry us through the season. And the series is called Come and Die, an invitation to the cruciform life. And so I'm going to be sharing uh, the message that I shared last week with our church. I'm going to be sharing that with you this morning. But if you uh, have your Bibles. I believe the, the scripture is going to be here on the screen. Find me in, meet me in Matthew chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 13, and we're going to read down through verse 26. It says these words. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? All of us has to answer that question. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside. And began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. How would you like Jesus to call you Satan? <laughs> you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I'd like to speak to you from the topic today, and the topic comes in the form of a question. And the question is this, do you really want this? Do you really want this? Let me pray for us, and then we'll continue in our time together. 
Father, we're thankful to be here because you're here. We're grateful to be in your presence, God. We want to acknowledge your presence with us. And Lord, we recognize that today we're getting ready to talk about some difficult things. We're going to talk about some hard stuff. And so I recognize that when we talk about stuff like denying ourselves and taking up our cross and, and following you, Jesus, that it, this, this doesn't actually make sense for any of us to do unless you do a miracle in us to want to come with you on this way. And so I ask God that even this morning you would begin to do miracles in this place, that you would begin to turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, that you would begin to do something to, to, to cause us to see you as, as beautiful and worthy enough to go in this direction with you. And so, God, I pray that I wouldn't be a distraction to what you would want to do this morning in this place. And so I ask that you would move me out of the way. Hide me behind your cross so that Jesus might be lifted high and exalted, so that Jesus might be all in all. And so, Lord, to that end, I ask that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer in whom we trust. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. 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 So what's the hardest thing that you have ever done? I'm talking physically, emotionally, spiritually taxing. The hardest thing that you've ever done. Think about that for a second. See, when I think about this question, you know, you would think that the first things that come to mind for me are things like parenting twin five-year-olds. That's hard. It's not easy. Or something like marriage. Marriage is not hard. If you're married, you know marriage is not, I mean, not easy. It's hard. I said not hard. Something like church planting in Manhattan. You think that that's something that would come to mind for me. Or even something like being a collegiate athlete. See, all of those things are hard. Don't get me wrong. But the thing that always comes to mind for me and that, that, that I name among those other things were tryouts for my freshman high school basketball team. So you got to understand that these tryouts were the stuff of legends. You know, if you were a freshman and you entered the school and you said that you wanted to try out for the basketball team, you would immediately start hearing all these stories from the upperclassmen trying to tell you about how hard these tryouts were. They start telling you stories about how during tryouts you'll start to see kids on the sidelines just with their faces in trash cans vomiting because of how hard and how intense the tryouts are. And they tell you stories about how midway through the, the tryouts you'll start to see people just start to disappear. And you'll come to find that they're hiding in the bathroom stalls because the tryouts were just so hard. And see, most people, when, when the upperclassmen would tell them these stories, we, we wouldn't believe them. We'd be like, you know what, y'all are gassing this up. Like, y'all are, that's what we used to say, gassing this up, like hyping this up, exaggerating, just, you're just, you're just, just gassing it up. But I can testify to the fact that they weren't lying. <laughs> they, they were not lying. Freshman basketball tryouts were like hell on earth. I mean, listen, every year our, our coaches, they would have tryouts the day after Thanksgiving. Like, who does that? Who, like, who puts tryouts the day after Thanksgiving? 
that's cruel, right? Like, why did you do that? But see, there was a method to the madness of my coaches. See, freshman basketball, it was the front door to the entire basketball program. A program that was trying to win championships. It's not easy to win a championship. It'll cost you something to win a championship. And so our coaches wanted to be upfront about that cost because they weren't interested in having players in the program who drop out midway because they didn't know what they were signing up for. See, we all appreciate when people are upfront with us about stuff, right? We all appreciate that. We, we don't like being hit with hidden fees, right? We don't like that. We don't like signing up for things that look like it was something that we wanted to be a part of on the commercial, but it turns out that we should have read the fine print at the bottom of the screen. You know, one of the things that always cracks me up is those, those commercials, right, about medication. Always cracks me up. See, they'll tell you in glowing terms with, with people holding hands and smiling and running through fields of flowers about everything that you want to hear about their product. But at the very end of the commercial, y'all know that that super fast, sped up voice, it comes on and it starts to say stuff like side effects could include bloating, possible cramping, uh, migraine headaches, and possibly even death, right? And they just move on to the next commercial. They just move on real quick. I'm like, did, did, did they just tell me that if I take this pill, I might die? They just said that. I'm like, don't do that. Don't move on from that. But I get why they do it. I get why they do it. I mean, they're, they're, from their perspective, there's not always a huge percentage chance that if you take this, something bad is going to happen. And, and at the end of the day, they're trying to sell their product, right? And, and if you're trying to sell your product, you don't lead with, you might die if you take this. But you know, one of the things that you and I find out when we read through the Gospels, we, we find this out about Jesus pretty quickly, is that when Jesus invites us to be a part of his discipleship team, and when Jesus offers us the medication that he is providing, he doesn't hide the risk factors in fine print. Jesus is upfront about the cost that comes with being his disciple. Because, see, Jesus isn't about gathering a crowd. Jesus isn't about getting the masses to buy his product. But Jesus is about building a team. A team that is moving together toward the goal of the kingdom of God. And Jesus isn't interested in having players on the team who are going to drop out midway through the season because they didn't know what they were signing up for. Or to put it in Jesus' words, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So as we step into this season of Lent, we are meant, it's meant to be a time where we go on the journey with Jesus to Jerusalem, to the place where he will be nailed to a cross. But before we embark on that journey, Jesus has a question that he puts before every single one of us. And it's the question that I asked you at the beginning. Do you really want this? See, Jesus wants us to consider carefully what we're saying yes to. 
In Luke chapter 14, Jesus puts it this way. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Whether he has enough to complete it. In other words, it's only logical to consider the cost before you start out on the mission. But what I think we all want to know as we're hearing all of this is what is this cost? What is the cost? And so in Matthew chapter 16, which is the text that I just read from, we find that the story that Matthew has been telling up to this point, it, it takes a, a dramatic turn. And really the same turning point or this hinge point, it shows up in all of the synoptic gospels. So in Mark chapter 8, in Luke chapter 9, in Matthew chapter 16, this, this hinge point, this turning point shows up. And everything hinges on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Everything hinges on that. And so the first portion of Matthew's gospel is, is really all about Jesus demonstrating who he is through his preaching and his teaching and his signs and miracles and healing. And he's doing all of that. But once Peter and the 12 make their confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the miracles start to die down. And the emphasis in Matthew's gospel starts to be placed on where Jesus is going. And so it says in Matthew 16, 21, that from that point on, meaning from the time of the confession, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. See, so many of us want to follow Jesus, but we've never stopped to ask Jesus where he's going. So we said we want to follow Jesus, but we don't even know where Jesus is headed. And see, the issue that came up for Peter was not necessarily that he was going to Jerusalem. In Peter's mind, going to Jerusalem made sense if you were the Messiah. It made sense for Peter. See, Peter and the rest of, his, uh, of the disciples, they had this vision. They had this vision that the Messiah was going to march into Jerusalem, that he was going to challenge King Herod and the Roman Empire, that he was going to overthrow all the corruption and reestablish the throne of David in the holy city and do it by any means necessary, even if he had to do it by the tip of the sword. And so when Jesus starts talking about the fact that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer. And he's going to be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter's having none of that. Peter is having none of that. See, see, in Peter's mind, fake messiahs get killed. In Peter's mind, failed messiahs, failures get killed. This wasn't the first time that Jesus wasn't the first person to ever say, I am the Messiah. There had been people that had come before Jesus who had claimed to be Messiah and had ended up being put to death. Because whenever someone would stand up and try and challenge the Roman Empire, try and challenge the, the current way that things were, they were always put to death and put on display so that Rome could tell the world, this is what happens when you try to challenge Rome. Don't challenge us. So Peter had seen this before. And so Peter's like, listen, this is not going to happen with us. It's not going down like this. 
This, is, this wasn't Peter's vision of what the Messiah was supposed to do and how the Messiah was supposed to do it. And so Peter pulls Jesus off to the side because he's got to confront Jesus about what Jesus just said. And so he says to Jesus, far be it from you, Lord. Far be it from you, Lord, that you're going to die. Jesus, over my dead body. This is not going to happen to you. And so when I read this, I'm like, who does Peter think he is? Who, who does Peter actually think he is pulling Jesus to the side to confront Jesus in order to rebuke Jesus? It, it must be that just a few verses ago, Peter, uh, Jesus said to Peter after he made his confession, hey, Peter, praise God that God revealed this to you. And Peter, you, I'm going to call you Peter. Your new name is Rock. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think that went to Peter's head just a little bit. <laughs> right? I think that went to Peter's head a little bit. I, I think he's like, all right, Jesus, you just said that we're getting ready to build this church. And, and I recognize that you, you told me that I'm going to be a part of this, that I'm going to be a pivotal part of this whole thing, that you're building this whole thing on me. And so, listen, I know you just said this whole suffering and death thing, but it's, it's not going to go down like that. If we're going to build this church, it's not going to happen like this. See, as a church planner, that cuts me to the core. Trying to tell Jesus how to build Jesus' church. Something that, that's, that every time I read it, it just hits me. But I read this and I'm just like the audacity of Peter to try and tell Jesus what to do. But see, in reality, how many of us are just like Peter? How many of us are just like Peter? See, we say we want to follow God and then try and tell God what to do and how to do it. We tell God we need healing, right? We come to God, God, I need you to heal me. And then we proceed to tell God how that healing needs to take place. <laughs> That's what we do. It's like those people who go to the doctor, right, because they need the doctor to diagnose them and to tell them what to do. And then they try to tell the doctor how to do her job because they Googled a little bit and read up a little bit on WebMD, right? And now they think they know everything about some of y'all like, That's me, y'all. That's me right there. That's what I do. See, Peter got a little bit of revelation. And then he tried to tell Jesus how to do his job as Messiah. Wow. See, beware of those people who get a little bit of revelation about God and think they know everything. That's us. We do that. Let me just say this about Peter, though. I'm not, I'm not ragging on Peter. I love Peter. Because I'm just like Peter. I'm just like him. But, but, but see, what's interesting to me is that when Peter pulls Jesus aside to confront him, the only thing that he wants to talk to Jesus about is this whole suffering and death thing, which I understand. I, I completely get that. But, but it's like he didn't even hear the third part of what Jesus said. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things, and to be killed, and on the third day, be raised. 
But when Jesus spoke, all Peter heard was suffering and death. And he was unable to hear the word of the promise on the other side of it all. See, so many of us, we never experience what God has promised because we hate the pathway to the promise. We hate the pathway to the promise. And because we hate the pathway, we end up standing in the way of what Jesus wants to do for us and what Jesus wants to do through us. So many of us don't even recognize that we are standing in the way of the healing that God has for us. Jesus is like, look, you want me to go to the cross. You want me to go that way. And Peter's standing in the way. He doesn't even recognize that he's standing in the way of the thing that's going to save him. He doesn't even recognize it. But here's the thing about this way. Jesus is not just saying, I'm going this way. He's saying, if you're coming with me, you got to go this way, too. You got to come this way, too. I know you want healing, but the only way to healing is through the cross. I know you want salvation. I know you want freedom. But the only way you're going to get it is if you, if you come this way. But let me tell you something. Jesus never asks us to pick up a cross without also promising a resurrection. He never asks us to pick up a cross without promising a resurrection. Isn't this the gospel that we say we believe? Isn't this the gospel that was once delivered to all the saints, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. This, just, this wasn't just a one-time thing that happened with Jesus. Jesus is saying, no, this is the way that things happen within the economy of the kingdom of God. See, what Jesus did is he changed the whole game. Death is no longer the end of the story. Death now leads to life. Death now leads to life. And so, and so we don't have to fear going to the cross because we know what's on the other side of the cross. This is good news. But Jesus wants us to know that if we want resurrection, if we want healing, if we want freedom, there is no other way. You want to see salvation? You have to come this way. You want to see healing? You have to come this way. You want to see justice roll down like waters? You have to come this way. But it's so easy to find ourselves standing in the way of Jesus instead of being on the way with Jesus. And when I talk about Peter or us being in the way of Jesus, I don't mean that he's going to stop Jesus from accomplishing what he's going to do. But see, by standing in the way, Peter is blocking his own participation in what Jesus is getting ready to do. But see, here's the scariest part of this whole episode to me. See, if you look back at verse 22, when, when Peter went to confront Jesus, he says, far be it from you, Lord, to which Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. Now, Jesus isn't calling Peter Satan. The word Satan, it just means adversary. It means opposition. And so Jesus is saying, right now, Peter, you are acting as my adversary. 
But check this out. Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. Peter is calling Jesus Lord while simultaneously standing in Jesus' way. Think about that. Peter's calling Jesus Lord, but at the same time standing in Jesus' way. Do you realize that it is possible for us to call Jesus Lord with our lips, but with our actions show that we are his adversaries? Do you realize that that is possible? This is, this is Matthew chapter 7 type of stuff, where Jesus says, on that final day, when people will stand before me, they will come to me and they will say, Lord, Lord, we confess your name. We came to Recovery House of Worship, and we lifted our hands, and we praised you, and we called you Lord. And I will look at them, and I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because it's not those who just call me Lord who inherit the kingdom of God. It's those who do my will, Jesus says. So it's not enough to just say Jesus is Lord. For Jesus to actually be Lord, it means that we're following where he's going. It means that we are going with him, that, that he's the one who calls the shots, not us. See, Peter got out of line is what happened. Peter, to, to be a disciple means I am following behind my Lord, my master, my teacher. Peter stepped in front. How many of us are stepping in front and yet still saying that we are disciples? See, if this is Peter, who is the rock, who is capable of something like this, I mean, how prone are we to this very thing? We are, we are so prone to this. This isn't just a Peter thing. This is an all of us thing. And so to let us know how we can be disciples and not adversaries, Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. So that's the blueprint. That's the only path of discipleship. That's the only way to ensure that you are on the way with Jesus instead of standing in the way of Jesus. It was the German theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer who gave his life in the resistance movement against Adolf Hitler, who says in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so I ask you again, do you really want this? I'm going to tell you something. I've been around the church for a long time. I've been around the church for a long time, and there are a lot of people who claim to be disciples of Jesus who aren't really about that life. And see, one of the problems with the Christianity that has taken root in the church is that we have said that the call to discipleship is this. Jesus died for you, so just come and say yes to this free gift. And that is true. But not everything that is true is the whole truth. And see, we have failed to complete that sentence. 
Jesus died for you, and he calls you to come and die with him. And I have a feeling that if we considered that call much more seriously, our churches might be smaller, but our disciples would be more potent. Our disciples would be more powerful. And now to understand what Jesus is getting at here, I think, it's, I think it's helpful for us to talk about what it means to take up your cross before we talk about what it means to deny yourself. And so you've probably heard people use the phrase before, everybody's got their cross to bear. And when they say that, they mean that everyone has to go through suffering and hardship. Everyone in this world suffers. As it says in the book of Hebrews, that there, there's a, a suffering that is just common to being human. It just comes with the territory. But that's not exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Everyone is not suffering because they're carrying the cross of Christ. There's a particular kind of suffering that comes with following Jesus on this way. And so when you hear Jesus talk about taking up your cross, don't think about it just as suffering. Think about it as a vocation. A vocation of self-giving love for the sake of the world. See, at its core, the way of the cross is about a way of being in the world in which I lay down my rights. My right to self-preservation. My right to hold on to my own bitterness. My right to continue on in unforgiveness. My right to remain apathetic to the suffering of others. My right to do what I want to do, even if it means that I hurt somebody else in the process. My right to be right. I'm laying these things down for the well-being, for the flourishing, for the liberation, for the healing, for the salvation of another. And listen, when you live according to this sort of ethic, you will suffer. When you open yourself up like this, you will suffer. This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, everybody who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I heard a uh, Hip-hop artist by the name of Shobaraka say this one time. He said, love isn't love unless it can be taken advantage of. Love is not love unless it can be taken advantage of. See, when you, when you open yourself up like that, you open yourself up to crucifixion. Right? There's a, a Catholic priest by the name of Richard Rohr who talks about taking up your cross this way. And he says, following Jesus is a vocation to share the fate of God for the sake of the world. That's a lot. That's heavy. Share the fate of God for the sake of the world. See, Jesus shows us plainly that we have a God who willingly takes on death so that we might have life. Right? We follow a Jesus who laid down his right to his own will so that we might be granted access to the kingdom of God. We serve a savior who laid down his right to a good reputation so that the poor and the outcast and the stepped on and the passed over might know that they are loved by God and created with divine purpose. See, this is the vocation of cross bearing. 
This is the vocation of cross-bearing. So when I think of people who have taken this vocation on, especially in a time like this when the threat and the concerns around something like the coronavirus are just, I mean, all over the place and we get updates to our phone like minute by minute about this thing, I can't help but have my mind to go to someone like St. Catherine of Siena who in 1374, when the bubonic plague hit her city, she believed that following Jesus led her to stay and nurse the sick and bury the dead when so many others were running for the hills. I see, now I know this is an extreme example, but, but what has to happen for any person in any capacity to willingly take on suffering for the sake of another? What has to happen? Jesus says in order to take up your cross in this way, you must deny yourself. But the question is what has to die? What is it that has to die? What is this self that must be denied? I see the call to deny self is not a one size fits all sort of call. Meaning that self-denial for me and self-denial for you are going to look like different things. Part of this journey with Jesus is understanding the form and the shape of the things within me, within my person, that are hardwired to resist the way of self-giving love for the sake of another. And see, all of us have those things, but they look different in each of us. We all have them. And there was a, a monk by the name of Thomas Merton who called what Jesus is talking about here the false self. And the false self is that part of us that resists receiving the love of God and being a giver of that love for the sake of the world. And the reason that Merton called this self false is because it's an illusion. It's an illusion. It's not who we really are. It's not who we really are. It's who we think we need to be. And it's who we project ourselves to be. Because see, you and I are made for the type of love that Jesus displays on the cross. We are made to be receivers of that love, and we are made to be givers of that love. Because guess what? You and I are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. And so when, and when Jesus calls us to deny self, he's calling us to deny the masks that we wear because Jesus knows that our truest self is who we are in God. Our truest self is who we are in God. And so he calls us to deny the masks. He calls us to say no to who we think we need to be in order to secure love and approval and acceptance and security for ourselves. He's calling us to say no to the things that prevent us from receiving the love of God and being givers of that love for the sake of another. See, when Peter, when he pulled Jesus off to the side and he started to rebuke Jesus, that was Peter's false self showing up. That, that was his false self that showed up in that moment. That was, that was that part of Peter that wanted to hold on to control. That, that was that part of Peter that, that wanted to preserve himself at all costs. It was that part of Peter that wanted to prove to Jesus and to all the other disciples that he was a super disciple. He, he needed to prove himself. That was what was showing up. And this wasn't just a one-time thing for Peter. This was a pattern. 
in Peter's life. It's a pattern that showed up again in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying the night that he would be arrested. And when they came to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? He draws his sword. He pulls out his sword. It's that false self showing up again. I want to preserve. I want to protect. I want to prove myself. It showed up again on the night of Jesus' trial. Right? I talked about this a few weeks ago when Peter was warming his hands by that charcoal fire. And he went and he denied Jesus three times when they asked him, do you know him? Aren't you one of his followers? It's this false self that showed up again. Protecting. Preserving. It would show up again much later after Jesus was ascended back to heaven to his father. In the book of Galatians, when, when, when Peter is sitting and he's eating with the Gentile believers, but as soon as he hears that the Jewish believers are coming to town, he, he retreats from his Gentile brothers and sisters because of what the Jewish brothers and sisters might think. And he's like, I got to protect myself. I got to preserve myself. It was a pattern in Peter's life. See, facing the false self is not easy. Facing this thing is not easy. Denying this thing is not easy. And and taking up this cross and laying down my life for another is not easy. There is a cost to pay to following Jesus on this way. This is a cost. But like Dallas Willard once said, the cost of discipleship is great, but the cost of non-discipleship is far, far greater. Because as long as I try to hold on to my own way, and as long as I try to protect my false self, as long as I try to preserve my own life on my own terms, Jesus says, I will lose my soul. I will lose my soul. In other words, the life that I was truly made for. At the deepest part of who I am. The love that I truly crave at the deepest part of me, it will always slip through my hands. And it will always remain just outside of my grasp. Always. Because what does it profit a person to gain the whole world? What what does it profit a person to be in control? What what does it profit a person to preserve their own life? What does it profit a person to always be right but lose their soul in the process? And so as we close, I want to put this question before you. What is it that makes someone want to embrace the pain of facing and denying the false self and living in such a way where they are laying down their life for the sake of another? What what makes somebody want to do that? Because like I said earlier, that makes zero sense. It doesn't make any sense for us to go that way. What, What makes someone willingly go to a cross What makes someone hang on a cross and instead of calling down fire on the heads of his enemies, pronounce forgiveness over them? What makes someone do that? 
See, at the end of the day, you've got to be brought to a place where you see the goal as worth it. Something, something has to be worth it, right? Something has to be worth it. See, when I was a freshman in high school, I heard all the horror stories about freshman basketball. And I heard about how hard tryouts was going to be. And then they told me that it's not just tryouts, but that's every day at practice. I still tried out anyway. Why? Why? Why did I do that? Because for me, playing the game that I love was worth it. Something was worth it. Why do we take medications that have a list of risk factors as long as a CVS receipt? Because the joy of having my headache gone is worth it. Something has to be worth it. See, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, 12, verse 2, that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus was able to see beyond the suffering to something that was worth it. He was able to see something. His his eyes were able to go to the mountaintop and see the promised land. He was able to see it. See, it was the joy of having those who were far away from God and estranged from the family of God brought back into this family. That was worth it for Jesus. See, it was the joy of seeing the kingdom of God break into every sphere of this world so that justice and righteousness and peace and reconciliation could start to bring back together the brokenness. That was worth it for Jesus. That was worth it for him. Guess what? You were worth it for him. You were worth it for Jesus to see you brought back into this family, to see you reconciled to the God who loves you and who created you. You were worth it. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. See, the cross was bearable because the goal was worth it. And so the prayer that I would encourage you to pray is not, God, make me strong enough to endure the cross. You'll never be strong enough in your own power to endure the cross. You can't. You can't. But make this your prayer. God, would you open my eyes to see Jesus and his kingdom as more worthy than anything else? Would you allow me to see his beauty? Would you allow me to see his glory? Would you allow me to see the worth of everything else so that I might be able to join the Apostle Paul in saying, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the prayer. That's where we are going. And so the question that I asked you at the beginning of our time together was, do you really want this? But I could also phrase it to you this way. Is Jesus worth Is Jesus worthy enough? Is the kingdom of God desirable enough? And until God opens our eyes to see Jesus as worth everything, and until God opens our eyes to see the kingdom of God, that it is better than anything that this world has to offer. Following Jesus makes no sense. (laughs) 
Oh, but when he opens eyes, when we see him, when you see him, you will recognize that there is nothing else worth living for. And you will recognize that this Jesus and this kingdom is certainly worth dying for. Certainly worth dying for. And so this is my prayer. Simply that we would all see and savor the worthiness of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus. Jesus, we need you. Because our eyes get distracted by so many other things that are not nearly as beautiful as you are, not nearly as satisfying as you are, not nearly as worthy as you are. And yet we go in that direction instead of following you on the way. And we find ourselves standing in your way. But Jesus, we have said that we want to follow you that we want to be your disciples. And you have made it very clear that there is no other way than the way of the cross. We have to come this way. And so God, I pray that for those in here right now who find themselves standing in your way, that they would hear this word and that you would bring them to a place of repentance so that they might turn away from that and get behind you instead of standing in front of you, God so that we might be your disciples instead of your adversaries, God. So would you do a miracle in this place, all over this place, God? And when you call us through this way, you are calling us to be people through whom the kingdom of God breaks into this world by way of self-giving love. We want that, God. We want to be a part of what you're doing in this world. And we know that you heading to the cross is where our freedom is at. And so, God, would we not be found standing in your way? We love you, Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.